0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Now, one of the things that's difficult about uh, God being all that He is is that there are certain aspects of His character that seem to be contradictory, that for us seems very difficult to line up all that God is and keep in balance and harmony. Um, And and that never is more apparent or visible than it is in the area of God's justice and His mercy. Uh, Is God just? Is He merciful? Is He loving? Or is He just really ticked off all the time? Right? And uh, it's, it's come to light recently in uh, modern Western Christianity. And there's been a polarization of camps who kind of are falling on one side of God's character and, or another. And uh, if you are much in touch with it, read much of what's going on with Western Christianity, you, you see this, these battles being waged. And uh, the first, the, the one side would say, you know, God is all love. And if God is truly good and loving, then how could He condemn people to eternity in hell? Uh, and especially if you are from the West, I don't know how it is in other countries, but in America, it just for a lot of people, is just uh, so contradictory they can't put those two things together. That a good and loving God cannot possibly condemn people to, to destruction, to hell, to judgment, and that kind of punishment. So they have a really difficult time reconciling that. So their answer or their solution is that God is all love. That's, that's, that's the primary attribute or character of God. And in the end, His his love will overshadow all of His other uh, characteristics. So in the end, whatever happens, God's just going to save everybody. He's going to drag them all into heaven, whether they want to go or not, uh, in love. right? Because that's what He is. And the God could not... Actually, go through with this judgment thing,
1: right?
0: And that's very popular right now. And a lot of people uh, follow that. Uh, a lot of people I've heard I've heard people say this. They say I could not worship or follow a God who could send people to hell.
1: Right?
0: And that kind of stuff just makes me want to step back because I, I mean the lightning bolts are going to come, you know. Because um, uh, any time you tell God what He has to be to fit your criteria, you're in trouble. Okay. You are making God in your own image. Uh, so, uh, but, but they feel strongly that, 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 that their God must be a God of love uh, who can only do uh, what they think is favorable for people, which is saving everyone, right? And that's not new, it's been a, a, a thought, a, a theology ever since the days of Jesus. Uh, then there's another side who uh, uphold that God is, sure, yeah, God's loving, all that fluffy, nice stuff, but the real God is just, you know, sure, God's loving when he has to be, but what really God wants to do is zap people. You know, God's waiting up there with a big club, just waiting for you to mess up so he can smack you. And uh, they would uphold the side of God that is just. And uh, they would argue that, you know, God is sending everyone to hell. And you better hope, you know, that somehow God finds some favor on those few elect who God's going to save. But, but basically, everybody's in big trouble. And they would uphold and support the size of, of God's justice, that He must judge, and that God must be a God of wrath. Uh, and they would emphasize that side. And honestly, when you look at those two things, uh, they do seem quite contradictory, right? It seems very difficult to imagine how God could be so angry uh, and, and so loving. So sometimes people reconcile it this way. They say, well, in the Old Testament, God was ticked off, but He went to counseling and uh, got His anger issues settled, and then He decided to do the New Testament. Okay? or some version of that. You know, so the God of the Old Testament is the ticked off, angry, wrathful God, and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. Uh, but even that causes problems because Scripture says clearly that God is unchanging Right? From, from beginning to end, he's Alpha Omega. He's unchanging. Right? He did not go to counseling. Right? And he has not had a change of character. Right? He did not resolve his anger issues. And now he's no longer angry. So he can now, you know, he's freed up through counseling to be loving. Right? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a problem with God's character, his unchanging nature. So, which one of these is right? Or, more importantly, for most of us, the question is: How do we reconcile? How do you put together those two seemingly opposing views? How do you how do you put together both God's wrath and His justice, and at the same time His mercy and His grace? Well, uh, Paul is is absolutely wrestling with these things in the book of Romans, and throughout most of his writings, and in chapter three, he really puts these two. Trues together powerfully. So let's look at uh, we're going to look at verses one through twenty six, and this is what he says. We'll read the first few verses. He says, "Then what is the advantage of being a Jew? If you remember, he's just gone this gone through this whole diatribe, this whole discussion with an imaginary Jewish counterpart, where he has argued that the law and circumcision cannot save Jews." And so he's spent a long time arguing that to be a Jew does not guarantee salvation. Okay? There is no uh, universal salvation just because you're a Jew. Um, which is a lot like the argument that says God's going to save everybody because He loves them. Okay, the Jews would have, of course said God's going to save every Jew because He loves them. And Paul's just unraveled that whole argument. Right. So his Jewish, imaginary Jewish counterpart says, well, then what's the point of being a Jew? What advantage is there? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? And Paul would answer, yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does, not, uh, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, You will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But some might say, uh, our sinfulness serves as a, a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for Him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would He ever be qualified to judge the world? But some might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights His truthfulness and brings Him even more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say these things. That we say the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Uh, We'll start there. Uh, Paul here is uh, continuing on this dialogue and uh, we're not going to go into all of it because it really comes from a very Jewish perspective and so we're not going to untangle all of what he's saying from the Jewish perspective. But out of this comes a couple of principles that apply to us. Alright, and in the end what he's, what he confirms or what he affirms is the rightness of God's wrath. Right? That it is the right thing for God to be angry towards sin. And this is how he does it. First of all, he, he, uh, his, his imaginary opponent says this, is there any advantage in being a Jew? And he affirms that there is. And he says the advantage is this the Jews were given the revelation of God. Okay, literally, the word that's used there is the idea of oracles of God. Okay, the instructions of God. And most likely he's looking at the whole of the Old Testament, not just the, the law of the commands. And really, probably what he's focusing on here is actually the promises of God. Okay, Abraham, back we went through Genesis, and you know that. Uh, what God did for Abraham was He gave him clear promises. Promises for a land and descendants and uh, that his, his, his descendants would become a great nation and they would be recipients of God's blessing. Right? Uh, those promises have incredible value to the Jews. right? Um, and that was their benefit. He says, you've been given the incredible covenant promises and the regulations that mediate those promises. Right? And that is a gift. And it's a good thing. Um, to have God's revelation, as promise, is always better than not having those gifts. And especially when God's made clear and specific promises to the Jews. He promised to make them a nation. He promised to be in their midst. He promised to be their God. Those are good things. Right? Uh, but, but clearly, if you read through the Old Testament, it doesn't take long to figure out that the Israelites were not faithful to those promises, right? They did not handle well that gift. Uh, they were unfaithful to God, unfaithful to His Word, and unfaithful to His promises. And over and over and over again, they, they really rejected God, and that was a problem. And so Paul says, uh, does, do, do their unfaithfulness cause God to be unfaithful? Now let's think about that. In the Old Testament... No matter how many times Israel was unfaithful to God, worshipped foreign idols, uh, did really stupid things, did God ever break His promises to them? Did He ever? Did that ever nullify what God had promised to do to Israel? Never, right? God was always absolutely true to His Word. In fact, you read through the Old Testament, and you you just got to stand back and say, God, you're way too patient. You should have been like knocking these guys off a long time ago. You waited way too long to send them into exile, right? God was incredibly... And even when He exiled them, even when He sent punishment and judgment, God said, I still will keep My promises. I am still true to My Word. No matter how unfaithful you have been, Israel, I will be faithful. And Paul affirms that here. He says, God is always faithful to His Word. He says here that God is true. He so says, everybody else can be a liar. God is true and He he means there God is true to His Word. He is true to His promises. No matter what you do, Israel, God is going to keep His promises to Israel. So, uh, God is faithful. And the reason for His faithfulness, Paul says, is His character. It is is who God is. God cannot be otherwise. He must follow the the deep uh, character, nature of His being. Right? So God can't be fickle. He can't change. He can't decide. Well, you're gonna you're gonna be unfaithful. Then I'm gonna be unfaithful. Right? That's what we would. That's what I would do. It's never what God does because He keeps His promise based on His character, not on the response of people. So that's what Paul says, um, and he says that God is indeed true to His promises because it is His nature. He is true to His word uh, because it is His character. Um, but here's the, here's the deal. Uh, here, here's the, the catch, okay the Jews, the Jews believed this, okay and the, the Jews knew that God was faithful to His promise, and that's part of what was the backdrop to everything that, that Paul says in chapter two, right? Because they, they would have argued, yeah, we're God's chosen people. God's made all these special promises to us, so even if we break the law, even if we're unfaithful, even if we mess up once in a while, God's going to save us, Because right? He's faithful to His promises. And that sounds all pretty good except for one small detail, one small glitch. And here's the glitch. In the Old Testament, did God only promise blessing to Israel? Or did He also promise judgment? Okay, they forgot that part, right? Oh yeah, that part, right? Yeah, sure, God's good to His Word, but He's good to all of His Word and all of His promises. And he said, and you read through Deuteronomy, he says it most clearly. He says, If you follow me, if you keep my commands, if you do what I say, I will bless you. If you do not keep my covenant, if you do not keep my commands, if you do not follow me, I will curse you. I will curse you. Okay, now where's the love in that, right? Where's the love? Uh, He says, I will curse you. That is a promise. Is God true to His word? Absolutely, all of it, all of it. Right? God keeps His promises, all of them. Right? Uh, it's funny how we like to do this. We love to uphold the part of God's character that we like. Right? We love to be very selective, but we want to focus and highlight of God's character. We love to talk about God's love.
1: Right? You
0: if I want to, if I want to write a best selling book, I'm going to write a book about God's love. And I'm going to tell everybody how loving and good how he is, and how he just he just uh, embraces everybody, and how it doesn't matter, you know, who you are. God's going to love you, and he's going to embrace you and bring you to his kingdom. And uh, and the proof that that works and sells well is that the largest church in America, for example, is pastored by a guy who says just that. It doesn't matter, right? God's just this big, happy, loving God. No matter who you are, God's going to take you in. Right? Uh, but the reality is, if we're going to feature any one part of God's character, we need to feature them all, right? We can't be—we can't pick and choose the parts of God we like, right? Uh, maybe you—maybe you've experienced this in your own personal life. You all know that your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness, right? That's how it works. And part of it's the perspective of the person getting uh, your strength, whether they perceive it as a strength or a weakness. I'm a pretty easygoing, laid-back guy, and uh, I, I am usually quite patient with people, and so oftentimes as a leader, I get praised as somebody who's not pushily or overly domineering. Right? People like that, right? But at the same time, I get criticized because I'm not de- domineering and I don't make other people fix themselves, right? And it's a matter which side of it you're on. You know, if you're the guy who needs grace, you'll like somebody who's not pushy and domineering, but if you want them to fix somebody else, you want. You know, why don't you get tougher? You're too. You're too nice, right? Well, it's the same character for me. It's the same characteristic that causes both problems, right? Whether it's good or bad. Well, same is true with God. We must take all that He is. We can't pick and choose. And the reality is that God must be true to His character. And He says, He says this if, in verse five: If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? Right? Uh, he's, he's saying this. He's saying, God, if He is to be a righteous God, okay, it means that God must always do what is right. That's what righteousness means. And in this context... Uh, his rightness is not some outside code or standard. Right? So God doesn't follow some outside law that's above him. Right? There's nothing above God. So he doesn't have to go to the library and check out a book on, on law and ethics to figure out what's right. He decides what's right based on his own being and character because he's, he is perfection. Right? His very being and everything that it is is absolutely good and perfect. So when God needs to know what's right, He just has to go with inside Himself and act and move and work in line with His own character and nature. And so God is loving. But God is also just and fair. And it's all part of who God is. And God always responds to what needs to be done out of His own being and character. He is righteous. He will always do what's right uh, based on His being. And so, uh, God is absolutely loving. It is absolutely His nature to love unconditionally and without limits. God loves all people unconditionally and without limits. All of humanity are recipients of God's incredible love. And He does it unconditionally. In other words, God never says, Well, that guy doesn't like me. I'm not going to love him. That lady, did you see what she did? She's not loving me. I'm not going to love her, right? Never. God's love is never based on how we are. It's based on His own character, and it's without limit. All right. God doesn't say, "Man, I'm just so tired of loving people. Let me take a day off today." You know, never. He never wears out. He never goes, "Man, I'm almost out of, I'm almost out of love. I got to go to the love bank and take out a loan." Right? Never. Uh, he loves all people equally based on his own being without condition or limit. But uh, his character is also a God who is just and fair. And it means that he must also act with absolute justice and fairness. He must judge sin. He is a moral, holy God who has a standard of right and wrong. And he must judge what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong in the world. And in every single human being who is a moral agent free to choose their own way. okay, It is his being and character and nature. He must do this. And he must act with justice and fairness. And here's the deal. Not only must he judge what's right and wrong, not only must he look at every act and every deed, every intention of every heart, and weigh it to determine if it is truly righteous or not righteous, but then he and his being must respond to that. Uh, he can't just casually say, oh, yep, that was bad, that was good, and keep some kind of scorecard and in the end say, well, what do you know, today the the bad's one, sad, and go on to the next day without responding to it. Okay, That would not be fair or right. It would deny his own character. In fact, it would deny his own love and goodness. Right? Uh, and, and we experience this to some extent we also are people who, who have some capacity for God's love we also have some sense or capacity of God's righteousness right For me it comes out most most frequently and most dramatically driving around Thailand okay my sense of justice just gets really alive driving and somewhere out there, there's a there's a club of crazy people uh, who all drive a black Vigo brand new pickup truck right. <laughs> And, uh, now, some of you may be drive a Black Viggo. I'm not saying it's one of you, but th- these people, they're out there, and they drive these trucks, and they think the truck is actually a missile or a tank, right? And uh, they're convinced that the, the truck go- is either in park or goes 140 kilometers an hour, regardless of where you are, right? And so you see these guys just w- w- driving their missile down through the middle of the city at 120 kilometers an hour, and everybody just better get out of their way, or they just run them over, right? And I see these people driving crazy like this and just, just I mean, you know, just crazy. And you see these, these poor little girls, little Maybonds, Bonds, you know, with their helmet on crooked and their jacket, you know, kind of. And, uh, you know, this guy in the black truck's just about to take out the Maybond Bond on the, on the old Honda Dream, you know. And it, you know, it, it makes me mad, right? I, and, and here's my fantasy. Here's my, I'll confess, my my own <laughs> fantasy you know, my my dream is that someday I'm going to see one of these guys and he's going to do something really stupid. It's going to just send me over the edge to insanity. And I'm going to chase him down and at the next stoplight when he stops, I'm going to run out of my truck and I'm going to smash his window out. And I'm going to reach in. I'm not going to hurt him because that would be sin. But I'm going to reach in and I'm going to grab the keys out of his ignition and I'm going to hurl those keys as far into some rice field as I can. This guy's going to have to run out there and go through acres of rice fields searching for his keys. And I'll show him, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel this sense of it's not right. He's going to kill somebody, right? He's going to bring great harm to some innocent person. That might be, by the way, they drive. And it triggers in us um, a sense of justice. I'm not sure my response is necessarily all that righteous. But there is right, something righteous, something right about our response that this is not right. They are putting innocent people at risk, right? And we we respond. And there's a right there is a righteous and right response to that kind of stuff. Uh, God's response is perfect, right? And his character is without flaw. So he, as Paul affirms, he is always just and right and fair as judge of the world. Okay, we cannot accuse God of being unfair or unjust in His judgment of the world. To do so is to unravel His character. Is to say that He is no longer perfect. That He's confused. If you want God to be perfect, then He must be just and fair. If you want God to be loving and not perfect, you're in trouble. Okay, Because He is no longer going to be a God who will have the wisdom to always do what's truly loving. He will be a God who if he's not fair, will favor things to his gain or the gain of those he likes and he's no longer truly loving because he's no longer fair or just. See, his love and his justice and his fairness have to go together. You cannot separate those attributes or qualities. So, the point of it all is this. Uh, Because God is who God is, He must judge sin and sinners. He must To do less would violate his own being; uh, would would unravel his own perfection, and that's what Paul is saying uh, in verses one through eight. So, so here's so here's the news for us. Okay, God will judge, and He will judge sin. Uh, And for the Jews, and for many of us, what we do with that is this. We say well, it's a good thing I'm not that bad, <laughs> right? It's a it's a good thing I'm a good person, right? I'm not like those murderers and rapists and those people who drive Toyota Vigos way too fast. Okay? Praise God, I'm not like that. Right? Uh, but just to make sure, Paul, you know, is clear about what he's saying here. He launches into the next section where he. Uh, Paints a picture of us that's not so fun. He says, Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Uh, you know, Paul. Uh, you know, this, and this is a great preacher trick, teacher trick. If you're trying to make a point, you're in a theological debate, and you feel like you really are losing, or they're not getting it. What do you do? Well, you just quote a bunch of scripture, right? You just go to your Bible and you just put together a whole string of scriptures to back up your point. Well, that's exactly what Paul does here he pulls out of the Old Testament a whole bunch of Scripture uh, to prove his point. It, it's actually the longest string of Scripture proof texts that Paul lists anywhere in the, in the New Testament. Okay, so he he's serious about this. Okay, he doesn't want anybody to be confused about this or go away a little clouded on this. He wants to make the point absolutely clear that all humanity is in absolutely fallen state. And that fallen state is not a problem, simply that we're mostly good people who every once in a while do bad things. Okay, What he wants to make sure we're clear of here is that every human being is dominated by the power of sin. We are slaves absolutely under the control, the full control of sin. Right? So the problem is not that, well, you know, if we just tried harder, we could beat this. You know, if... If you know, we're, we're almost there, if we just give it that extra little oomph, we, we could do this. Right? It is not like, uh, sadly, the Buddhism, where there's this this belief that you know if I just go off in a cave and become a monk and, and give up all desire, I can be free of sin and I can come to a place of a state of perfection. Paul says it is impossible because every human being is under the power of, of a force called sin that we cannot escape. To put it another way, in more modern terms, every single one of us is an, is an addict. Okay, We are all addicted to sin. And it's an addiction that we cannot escape on our own. Uh, what are you addicted to? <laughs> I mean, I have my addictions. We all have our addictions. It's what it means to be human. And Paul says, no one can escape this. right? Okay? Uh, one of my more uh, less harmful uh, addictions that I can share with you is my addiction to chocolate, right? And for, for me, the stickier and gooier it is, the more addicting. So the way it works for me is if there's a piece of chocolate cake at our house with thick, gooey chocolate frosting and just and Juan, who lives with us, makes the best chocolate cake in the whole universe, and if there's a piece of that cake sitting around, you know, I can resist it for a while, like 10 minutes or so, and, and then, you know, it's just calling to me, Tim, come eat me. And I just can't resist. It's like a magnet drawing me, right? A moth to a flame. I can't resist, right? We're addicted, and, and sin is that way. It is a power and a force in our life. And the crazy thing is, as Christians, as those who have come to Christ, who for whom the power of sin has been broken, we still, if we're honest, know and understand the force of its pull on us, Right? if it has that kind of force and pull on us still as those who have been set free in Christ, what would we have been without Christ? Right? No hope. No hope. So here's the bad, the bad news. Uh, you know, Paul says, we are falling short of God's glory. All have sinned. All are falling short of God's glory. A famous verse. And the idea there, God's glory is both a picture of His presence, but it's also what God created us to be. God created us to be partakers of His glory, and I think what He's saying here is we have fallen short. We have lost uh, the glory that God created us. And no matter how hard we try, we can never be in that state of glory. We are, f- and and the verb there is a, is a present. It's a continual thing. We are not. It's not that we just fell, but we are continually falling, continually falling, farther and farther away from God's glory, God's standard, God's goodness. Right? We have all turned away from God. Um, And he finishes this way. He says, Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose was to keep people from having an excuse. The purpose of the law was not so that we could fulfill it, ever. God never gave the law so that we could try to be good enough by keeping it. The law was given to condemn us. Okay? Okay? So that we would be without excuse, and to show the entire show that the entire world is guilty before God, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Right? Well, that's good news. <laughs> uh, when Adam and I, I've, I've had this discussion with people. When when people say, "Well, why did God put the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden?" And if he hadn't done that, uh, we would have avoided all this problem. So that's not actually true. Uh, the problem was not the tree in the garden. The problem was the heart inside man. Right? The tree only illustrated what was already true of the heart. That's what the law is. Okay? The law is not the problem. The problem is our heart. And it only illustrates and highlights the true state of our heart. That we are hopelessly lost. So we are without excuse, and here's the here we put those two things together. God must judge sin; we can't help but sin. Uh, so, so what that means is that equals we're in big trouble, right? We're in big trouble. God must judge us. We must absolutely fall under God's wrath. Okay, there is no other option, right? Uh, if if our only hope is the law and the old covenant. But we know that that's not the end, right? There is another way. And it's the place where justice and mercy meet. Where those two things come together. Well, where do those two things come together? How does God satisfy His need for justice and His desire to love? How does He do that? How does He bring together these two incredibly opposing parts of His nature? Well, he says this, but now, but now God has shown us a new way to be made right with him apart from the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Okay? So God's plan in in the gospel in the New Testament was not something he came up with on the spur of the moment. It was what he had foretold in in Moses and the prophets from the beginning, right? He was always looking forward to this New way, but now God has revealed it. Right in the New Testament, God did not make a new way of salvation. Okay, God's way of salvation never changed from Old Testament to New Testament. Okay, God always saved people the same way, but now God has revealed a new covenant. Okay, the way has not changed, but His revelation has changed, and that revelation is in the person of Jesus Christ. Um. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who they are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. But God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Um, the good old, if you have an, uh, an older translation like the King James or New American Standard, he uses a great word here that we, it's a good word, but not a good word because we know what it means. He uses the word propitiation. <laughs> Has anybody been propitiated lately? <laughs> Like, I'm not sure what, what that means, and that's why a lot of more modern translations don't use the word because it's not a word we use often. Uh, but he says, there's a, "He says, but now, one of the most amazing two words in all of Scripture. But now, there is a new way, right? And the way is the propitiation of Christ. And he emphasizes that this new way is not for Jews only; it's for anyone who will take advantage of it. Okay, not that all will be saved but that anyone can be saved by this new way. And the new way uh, is the way of propitiation. What does that mean? Well, the word that's used there means propitiation. Uh, This particular word is actually only used two times in the New Testament, here in in Hebrews chapter 9. It's used about 27 times in the Old Testament. And 22 of those times, as well as the time in in Hebrews chapter 9, the word speaks of the mercy seat. You remember the mercy seat? The Holy of Holies? On the Ark of the Covenant. The big slab of gold weighed a ton. On top of this big slab of gold was these two angels whose wings stretched out. And it was the place where God's presence rested. It was His throne or His chair, right? Um, well, how is the mercy seat propitiation? Right? Well, you got to go back to the Old Testament and remember the Day of Atonement. And once a year the high priest was commanded to take the blood of a bull, to kill the bull, to slaughter this bull, full-size bull without, without flaw or blemish, to take the blood, and they were to go into the Holy of Holies. It was the only time in the whole year the high priest entered the Holy of Holies.
1: Right?
0: We all know the stories and the rumors. You know, It was kind of a terrifying thing because they were going into the presence of God, and if they weren't right, if they didn't follow all the steps and procedures, what happened to them? You, you you know you, you go back to go you do not you do not collect two hundred dollars you do not pass go you know you die right and so they would go in with a rope tied around them so if they weren't right uh, and they did mess up and they died they could pull them out with other other people and it, and that's a picture of God's wrath right God's wrath when you enter into the holy of holies before His presence you come before a terrible horrible God who is righteous and holy, whose wrath will fall on you if you don't get it right. right? But they would go into the temple and they would take the blood and they would atone for the sins of the people by sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. And by doing that, that, they would make a propitiation for the sins of Israel. In other words, they would appease or satisfy God's righteous wrath for their sin. Right? Uh, the blood represented a bull who gave its life, who was slaughtered, right, as an act of vengeance and wrath. So that instead of God pouring out His wrath by killing the Israelites, uh, the bull was killed as a substitute and its blood was taken and sprinkled to prove that its life had been taken. And in so doing, you are appeasing the wrath of God. You are satisfying his justice, right? Well, of course, you you can look at that and you could say, well, I don't think that really works. How could a bull really be adequate to appease God's wrath? Well, of course, it's not, right? But Paul states here that Jesus is our propitiation; that that sacrifice looked forward to something much bigger and much better. That God knew one day He would have to make. The sacrifice. And here's the amazing thing in this passage. Who brings the offering to the altar in Romans chapter 3? Do we bring the offering to the altar? Does a high priest? Does, does Jesus bring the offering to the altar? No. Who brings the offering? God Himself. Okay, God Himself, and, and this is totally backwards because in all other religions, we propitiate God by giving something from that belongs to us. Here's the amazing thing. God made that atoning sacrifice by bringing His own offering. right? And not just any offering. His Son. Right? His only Son. And He sacrificed Him and poured out His blood so that His blood could be sprinkled on the mercy seat. right? As... Something that would appease, would satisfy the righteous wrath of God. That is love. Right? It is God's wrath being satisfied, and His love being poured out in the same exact event.
1: Right?
0: A couple commentators put it this way: God's love and wrath meet in the atonement, and neither can and neither can be be denied or compromised if the full meaning of that event is to be properly appreciated. In, In the cross was both God's full wrath and full compassion being displayed in one incredible event. Another commentator says this, our own justification before God rests on the solid reality that the fulfilling of God's justice in Christ was at the same time the fulfilling of His love for us. Right? Is God loving or is He just? Well, in the cross, He perfectly fulfilled all of His character, all of His being, all of His nature. Right? It's what makes the cross and the Gospel so incredible. Right? And, and the tragic thing is that for those who deny God's wrath, they they make the Gospel so meaningless and shallow and nothing. right? Because you really rob God of what His love is. If He's not wrathful, if His sacrifice of His own Son was not to satisfy His own wrath, His own right sense of justice and mercy, uh, it becomes kind of a pointless, meaningless exercise. We diminish who God is when we do that. And we really, in the end, diminish the gospel. Uh, Paul does not do it. He upholds it. And he says, he concludes, and listen to these words. He says, um, God presented Jesus as the propitiation for our sin. People are made right. They are declared right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice demonstrates that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in past times. Right? The amazing thing really isn't that God is wrathful. The amazing thing is that He has not poured out His wrath a lot sooner. Right? God says, "Really," in his, Paul says, in His fairness, the cross demonstrates why God could be so patient. God did this to demonstrate His righteousness, for He Himself is fair and just, and He declares sinners to be right in His sight when they believe in Jesus. Amazing. He's amazing. Uh, God is just. And He is absolutely at the supreme pinnacle of His justice in the cross. And what He did, pouring out uh, His own Son's blood as a sacrifice for us. And Paul makes it clear that this is made available uh, by God's grace through faith. Now the question could be, well why, if God did that, and He did it for everybody, then why can't God just... um, you know, apply the blood of Christ universally to every single human being and save them all anyway.
1: Right?
0: Uh, well, that sounds great. And believe me, if God could do that, in fairness, He would. But here's the catch. Okay, grace demands faith. Right? The fact that what God has done for us is a free gift of grace, right? it demands that we must receive it by faith. Okay, if we did anything else to get it, Right? Like if God said, well, if you just bow to me, like I saw in, uh, in t- some Tibetan, poor Tibetan monk lady had to bow to God, the, the gods, 100,000 times. Right? So she spent a month, did this in a month, bowing, standing up, prostrating herself, 100,000 times. Right? So God says, you do that 100,000 times, and I'll give you grace. But guess what? It's not grace anymore, is it? It now becomes a work uh, that earns it. So, if there's any way we will receive grace, the only mechanism can be faith—that we receive it just by believing it. And here's the deal: uh, doing a doing a work contradicts grace because it becomes law. But grace without free choice—grace without the free choice to receive it—is not a gift; it's torture. <laughs> okay? And here's proof. Okay? If you've been around a two-year-old, here's the proof: a two-year-old is living proof. Okay, up to age two, kids drink milk, right? They love milk. Milk's a good thing. At two, they get teeth. They start biting their siblings, right? And uh, and other things. And at that point, we have to introduce real food because they can't eat their siblings. (laughs) It's against the law, right? So we introduce real food. And we, 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 we tell them how good this real food is, right? Peas and carrots and all kinds of yummy stuff. And you put the mushed up nasty green peas in their mouth, and what do they do? They blow it back out at you. Actually, this happens in about nine months, not two years. But uh, and, and we have this fun job of giving kids one of the greatest gifts in the world, food. Right. We all love food, right? And we want them to love food as much as we do, right? Because, you know, we don't want our 16-year-olds sucking a bottle in the middle of the church, right? It's just, it's just wrong. <laughs> we really want them to eat food. Okay. So so we've got to convince them that this is a good gift.
1: Okay.
0: But if you've ever done this battle with a two-year-old, you, you can know where this can go. You know, you say to the kid, but you know, it's ice cream. You never had ice cream. You'll like this. Try it. Kid decides, I'm not going to try it. Okay? I don't believe you. You're, this is a conspiracy. It's poison, and you're out to kill me. I'm not eating that. Right? Okay, You've got a choice here. You can go to battle and you can you could pry their mouth open and you can, I've seen parents do this, cram it down their throat. You're going to eat this, right? Okay, at that point, it's not being a gift and it starts being torture, okay? And I don't care what you're giving them, at that point, when you are overcoming and overpowering their will to give them a good thing, it's no longer a gift. It's torture. And I don't care how good it is, they're not going to like it, right? So we have to find more creative ways to introduce new foods to kids. And we've got to bribe them. we we got to be more patient, right? Because in the end, if it's going to be a gift they receive, they have to have faith that we're not poisoning them, that it actually is good, right? That we like it and we want them to like it. They have to believe us. And then they receive it. And then they find out, oh yeah, it was good. I like this. Right? Same thing's true of God's grace. Okay? If we don't have the freedom to, in faith, believe that what God is offering us is a good thing and freely choose it for ourselves, if God just thrusts it upon us, it is not a gift, it's torture. And the reality is that God has given us free will and every person must choose if they want the gift or not. And the mechanism they do that is by faith. God will not force it on anybody. He's loving. Believe me, He wants every person to know the goodness of His gift. But they must believe that what Jesus did for them is a good thing and that it is the only way they will have life. Let me just briefly apply this all in two quick points. Uh, What do we do with all this? Well, I do believe, as I shared before, that a lot of this Paul shares is not just for unbelievers. I really believe God wants us as believers to to be firmly rooted in in this stuff and be thinking about it often, right? And here's why. First of all, because we really do need to shatter all our delusions of being good, right? One of the things that will... And, and I hear this often, you know, I hear people say, well, you know, I don't really have a good testimony because I was never a drug, drug addict prostitute who got thrown in jail and killed 10 people there and then met Jesus, you know? So my story is I was a good person and I got saved, so I don't know how to share my testimony. Well, you know, you need to read Romans 3. You weren't a good person. Okay, You just hadn't got caught yet. Right? So you weren't in jail just because you hadn't got caught. You were a horrible person. You are not a good person. right? You were under the power and grip of sin. And to a large extent, you still are. Apart from God's grace. On those days when we live in the flesh and not in His power. You still are. Right? Uh, we, need to, we need to shatter the delusion of uh, we're pers- you know we're mostly good people. We're not. Right? Second thing, uh, you know, for a lot of people, their Christian experience is really quite dead, boring, and flat. And and I hear this all the time. I want to I want to worship God. I want to be I want to be in love with God, but I just don't feel it. And and the the reality is, one of the reasons we don't feel it is because we don't really get how lost we were, we are. Right. If we would meditate and reflect a lot more on really how screwed we were. I think I'm not supposed to say that word, but I did, so I'm sorry. Uh, what, what horrible trouble we were in. Um, you know, we don't get greats. We don't really understand how much God loves us because we don't get how messed up we were. How incredibly close we were to absolute destruction. Under God's wrath and judgment and what that would be like. We need to spend time reflecting and meditating on uh, this place where God's perfect justice and perfect mercy met in what Christ did for us. To believe it, to own it, to meditate on it.